We uh, have been looking at the theme of glorious judgment. Uh, the first week was glorious judgment in Eden. Second week, glorious judgment in e- Egypt. And tonight it is glorious judgment in, at Easter. Let me lead us in prayer. We ask our Heavenly Father that you would speak to us tonight, that as we focus in on the cross of Christ, we would be in awe and wonder at your love and your mercy and your grace and that you might receive all the glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It might surprise you to hear that not all Christians believe the same things about the death of Jesus. Some Christians doubt that he really rose from the dead. But most Christians agree that he really lived and really died on a cross in Jerusalem around about 33 AD. But even if we agree on this, We don't all agree about what actually spiritually happened when Jesus died. Christians are divided about the reason and about the meaning and about the impact of his death. And much of the controversy relates to what you think about the judgment of God. In this four-talk series from the Bible, we've been looking at the theme of God's glorious judgment. We started at the beginning of the Bible at creation, and in the Garden of Eden, and we saw that God made everything and therefore he owns everything and he rules everything and therefore we as humans have an obligation to serve him, serve the one who lovingly rules us. However, the first humans doubted God's goodness and love and they trusted the lies of the devil who, as a serpent, convinced them to disobey God and from that moment God's creation came under God's judgment. What should have happened then is he should have just wiped us out and that was it. But instead, God showed us mercy. God showed us amazing mercy. He kept the humans alive and gave them promises of hope for a future salvation that would be even better than it was before. And then we saw that promise being lived out as God dedicated a special people for himself who would live in a special land and would be a special blessing to all the world. And that was all going fairly well throughout the book of Genesis until God's people were turned into slaves in Egypt where they were facing the genuine risk of genocide in Egypt under the hand of the evil Pharaoh, whatever his name was. The Lord God heard the cries of the people and he sent Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And that all led to spectacular signs and wonders and ultimately the most serious plague of all, which was the death of the firstborn son, which we looked at last week. God's faithful people were spared this judgment, horrible judgment. How? They were spared it if they trusted God's instructions to kill a lamb and to put its blood on their door. And by the blood of the lamb, they were saved. The blood of the lamb saved them from God's judgment. How do we feel about such a seriously epic event? An epic event that saw so many people going through so much pain and suffering, and yet God's people being saved through all of that. Well, soon after that, Pharaoh let his people go. He sent his army to chase after them, and the whole army was drowned in the Red Sea. And the Red and what happened then? Well, they sang a song, verse fifteen. 
Moses, uh, chapter 15, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Thousands of thousands of soldiers have died, and they rejoice. They celebrate. They say, hooray. They are celebrating God's glorious judgment over their enemies. And they're celebrating God's glorious mercy over them. And all of this is good news. You might find that a little bit uncomfortable. But when you understand the situation they were in and what the people were like in their anger towards the true and living God, you too, and I as well, should rejoice in that judgment. And so these were the two episodes in the Bible that we've looked at over the last two weeks. And, well, what happens next? Well, the book of Exodus, and then the whole lot happens till the end of the Old Testament. Basically, the promises sort of came true under King David, but not quite. And then they sort of went on a bit more, and then they got thrown out of the land, and they went into exile, you know, about David, David and the lion's den and all that stuff. And then they came back to Jerusalem, but it wasn't quite as good. And then finally, by the end of the Old Testament and the bit just before the New Testament, they're back in Jerusalem, they're God's people, but the Romans are ruling and it's just not really quite great and they're waiting for the Messiah. So that some of the promises have come true, but they're just waiting for the full fulfilment. And then you get to the point where it is clear that Jesus is the fulfilment of all of this. And how is he going to fix things up ultimately? Well, by judgment. See, Jesus often spoke about judgment. For example, he said in John chapter 3, verse 36, he said, anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. That's what Jesus said. And then, two chapters later, he spoke of the fact that he himself is the judge. He says, I judge as God tells me, therefore my judgment is just, because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. And then a couple of chapters later in John's Gospel, John chapter 9, verse 39, we read that Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind and to show, that, show those who think they see that they are blind. Jesus often spoke about judgment. And why? It's because judgment is a central theme of the whole Bible. Judgment is coming. And that's why we need Jesus. Because he also said, referring to the Holy Spirit, Jesus said that when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. Judgment is coming, make no mistake. And that is why we all need Jesus. And the reason we're under judgment is because of what we saw back in the first talk, and that is that the first humans disobeyed God, and so because of that, they and all of us are under God's judgment. We are under judgment because of disobedience. We're under judgment because of disobedience. <clears throat> the punishment that comes from this is death. And that is what will come of God's righteous anger towards all who disobey him. This is a fairly intense talk in some ways tonight, right? 
But we're looking at the anger of God, that we're looking at the, the, the wonderful judgment of God because in it we see his glorious mercy. So stick with me on this, guys. Anyway, if we flick over to the book of Romans, we get to see a fair bit of judgment. We see in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God is angry at people who are wicked. It's not like he thinks, yeah, whatever. He actually he is personally affected by that, and he is judging people for their wickedness. And deep down, people know that they've done the wrong thing. And in, just in case the readers of Romans chapter 1 thinks it's all talking about those guys, Paul kind of says, well, actually, he's talking about you as well. Romans 2, you may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say that they are wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. And since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? We're all condemned before God. There's no wiggle room here. We're all under the judgment of God, and that is why we need Jesus. And that's why the death of Jesus is all about bringing a solution to this problem. The death of Jesus, isn't, it didn't happen so that we'd all be you know, wiser it didn't happen so that we'd all be nicer. It happened so that we'd be saved from hell. Because Jesus brings forgiveness from God. We need to get that clear in our head as we understand how his judgment works and his salvation that comes from that as well. And it all of this stems back to the biggest problem of all, and that is sin. Right from the start of the book of the Bible, start of the history of humanity, God's people rebelled against God and sin came into the world. And ever since then, it has been the number one issue facing humanity. United Nations can get together and say, what are the big issues that are facing the world at the moment? You know, they might say it's the coronavirus. They might say it's climate change, all sorts of other things. But the biggest problem is sin. And that is because sin leads to God's judgment. And because God's judgment leads to hell. You're not going to open up the newspapers and say, oh, we notice the biggest problem is sin. But it is. And therefore the biggest solution is going to deal with the biggest problem. And the biggest solution is going to be Jesus' death. But even so, Christians disagree about the meaning of the cross, which is where I started the See, some Christians believe that Jesus died on a cross, he was executed as a criminal because of what he said and did, and that's fair enough. We, I think that's pretty much universally thought of. Some Christians think that really all that matters is that he was a wonderful teacher and healer, as he was, and that he gave his disciples and people who followed him an example of how to live. That's the main thing. And so what happened was he came, he was a nice guy, he did nice things, he got a lot of attention, and so the bad religious leaders came in and said, we've got to shut him down, and so they sent him off to get executed, they conspired and got rid of him. And so the reason that Jesus died, they would say, is just because he did such wonderful things and said such wonderful things that he needed to be shut down because it was just too controversial and it ruffled too many feathers. And that is the whole meaning of the cross. It's what happens when you are a good person and you try and do good stuff. 
Others say that he came to show a good example. So they go one step further than that. They say that, that Jesus, Jesus basically died for them and the main thing that he did was show us how to live. And so you want to know what to do in life, you be like Jesus. You, what would Jesus do? Badges and things like that. That's the main thing he did. But there's another view that goes a little bit further, which I think is helpful but insufficient. And that is that he died to show us God's love. Well, he did. Yes, he did. He did show us a good example. And he did show us God's love. But some will say that it shows us God's love in that God loves us so much that he'd give his son to die as an expression of his love. It's kind of like, I want to show you how much I love you. I'm going to do something amazing. I'm going to actually die for you. And you say, well, okay, thank you so much. That proves your love for me. It's not very useful now because you're dead, but thank you for showing yourself to be such a loving person that you would value me so much more than yourself. In a sense, that is true, but it is inadequate. It's not enough that Jesus was an example. It's not enough that he was an expression of God's love. And that is because neither of those things actually deal with the big problem. What's the number one problem facing humanity? Sin. So having Jesus as an example of how to be nice is not going to help. Having Jesus show us that he loves us is not in itself going to help. He's actually got to deal with the problem, which is the problem of sin. He had to deal with the problem of sin, and he did that as he died to save us from hell. We've got to see this as as an important part of what happened at the cross. And so his sacrifice needed somehow to fix the relationship between us and God. The sacrifice of himself needed to fix the relationship between humans and God. But even here, some Christians can get a little bit confused. Uh, Some people will say that, that what happened at the cross is that Jesus took away our sin. Now that is partly true, but it misses something that's important. Let me give you an example. Uh, Let's imagine uh, that I had a hypothetical child. I I do have four children. I'm not talking about any of them in this stage. They'll be pleased to know. But let's say I have a hypothetical child. And I say this hypothetical child, don't borrow my car. Don't borrow my car. My car. You you borrow the one that I've lent you, but not my car, hypothetical child. And then the hypothetical child decides that, well, I kind of really would like to borrow that car. And the hypothetical child goes and gets the spare key from wherever it might be and gets it out of the garage, takes it for a drive, has a terrific time, and oops, has a little bit of a scratch on the bumper bar. Well, the hypothetical child then goes and gets a quote and finds out it's going to be 500 bucks to get it fixed and says, Dad, it's okay. I've organised on Monday morning to take it down to the smash repairs. I'll pay the 500 bucks and I'll get it fixed and it'll be fine. And then when I return it, the car will be fixed. The sin will be paid for, will be dealt with, and you won't have, everything will be fine between us. Do you think that just by dealing with that sin, that it's actually going to restore my relationship with this hypothetical child? No. It's like, look, thanks for fixing the car, but why did you disobey me? Why did you hurt my feelings? 
I'm angry at you because I told you to obey me because I'm your dad. Hypothetical child. Never happened to one of my real kids. But And so not only is the sin dealt with, but the anger, the relationship is not dealt with. Can you see there's something missing there? Because all of this is comes down to the fact that our broken relationship needs to be fixed at the cross. It is personal. A whole bunch of Christians kind of miss a bit of this. They just say it's about the thing, the sin. Let's get rid of the sin and everything will be fine. Well, that will certainly help. It will certainly help if you can fix the scratch on my car. But the big problem is the relationship is broken down. That is what needs to be fixed. Romans chapter 2, verse 5 explains it this way. But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself for a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. There's a relation problem. There is, can you see that it's a personal issue between us and God? And God is angry at us for good reason. And this anger, because of our rebellion, is coming on the coming day of judgment. It's deeply personal. And it's about a tragically broken relationship. It goes on in chapter 2 of Romans, verse 7. He'll give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honour and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. It is very personal. God made everything. He's the one who runs everything. And we should be in relationship with him. But by default we are not. And the, the relationship's broken and it needs to be fixed. That's why it is so deeply personal. And we see this in chapter 3 of Romans 23. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. And how? Next verse. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. The atonement. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Now, I've got to say, I've been a Christian for a long, long time, and all the time, you know, I hear, you know, Jesus died for me, you know, the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb, blah, 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 blah. And if you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, it might be blah, blah, blah to you as well. It's kind of like just, it's what we know, it's what we believe, it's who we are, yeah, yeah, yada, yada, yada. But this is amazing. And we must never stop thinking about this. Jesus' sacrifice is mind-blowing. The idea that Jesus would fix our problems with God by sacrificing his own life is extraordinary. Don't, don't get used to that. Don't stop getting shocked by that. Because who does this? Who will give their life as a sacrifice for someone? Well, a friend might do it, maybe, for a friend. Maybe if they were a dear, dear friend. And in a sense, that's what Jesus said about why he died for his disciples. 
So John 15, 13, he said, There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. Jesus died for his friends. But he actually went one step further than that. And this is really mind-blowing, I've got to say. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, although someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. It's when we hated God that he said, I'm sending Jesus to die for you. It's when we said, I hate you, that he said, I love you. This is extraordinary. We were utterly helpless. We were completely full of sin. And yet God was so intent on keeping the promises that he made in Genesis chapter 3 and following that he would give his own son as a sacrifice to make it happen. And so Jesus took God's judgment upon himself. Romans 5 goes on to say, verse 9, Since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. We are condemned because of God's judgment. That's the big problem. And so because of the blood of Christ for us, we are now no longer condemned. God's judgment is no longer an issue for us. This is extraordinary. Christ, the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. Christ, the Passover Lamb, shed his body and blood for us. Christ's death brings about complete reconciliation and restoration with God. As it goes on to say, verse 10, for since our friendship with God was restored, it's beautiful, it's personal language, isn't it? Our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies. We'll certainly be saved through the life of his son. And so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. It's relational. Can you see that? If someone says it's just about fixing up the scratch in the car, no, 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 no. It's much more than that. It's a relational issue. God was angry with us and he loved us at the same time. And he solved the problem that we couldn't solve by sending his son for us. It is extraordinary that he would do that. And we've known this because of the most famous verse in the whole Bible, John 3.16. This is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God gave his one and only Son. I have two sons. I cannot get my head around how I could give a son to die for somebody else, let alone an enemy. Far out. This is what we see here. God the Father sacrificed his son for us. I take it that if you're a Christian, this is not the first time you've heard this. But I hope that tonight you will see it afresh as a miracle. This is God's glorious judgment. His glorious judgment shows that he will not allow evil to triumph over good. 
His glorious judgment shows that he will not allow his name to be defamed. And his glorious judgment shows just how far he will go to show love and mercy to us, we who do not deserve it. God's glorious judgment is most glorious at the cross. One of the songs we sing has this chorus, This the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath, the anger of God. And so we stand forgiven at the cross. That is how God's glorious judgment is seen at Easter. And this is the miracle of the cross. But I've got to say at this point, I, I feel compelled tonight to say to you that if you have not trusted in Jesus as Lord, then God's judgment remains on you. I don't do this every week. It's a few months since I've done this, but I'm going to do it tonight. And I want you to take a moment to reflect upon yourself. Because I don't think we get it clearer than this. That is, if you want to be forgiven, you actually must believe in Jesus. If you want to have that forgiveness placed so that the sin is placed on Jesus' shoulders and not your own, then you need to believe in Jesus. After all, this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Who will not perish? Who will have eternal life? It's whoever believes in him. If you wish to have the punishment you deserve for your sin given to Jesus instead of you taking it, you need to believe in him. And when you do that, Christ performs what has been called the Great Exchange. I've got a book on my shelf, and that's its title, The Great Exchange. It's all about the cross. And it's just a terrific way of summarising what happens. I, I showed this to my scripture class last year and uh, they got it really, really quickly, actually. I was surprised how well they did. But it kind of explains how the whole exchange works. Kind of imagine this, my left hand here is us and up here is God. There, there's nothing between us at all. There's a beautiful relationship. There's no anger and there's complete submission in, in, to our great loving God. And then, because the first humans believed the stupid snake, they doubted God and they disobeyed God and suddenly now there is this thing called sin and it blocks us and God and it needs to be dealt with. We can't get rid of it ourselves. We have to have it dealt with by somebody else. And so Jesus comes along. Jesus, unlike every other human, has never sinned and he has a perfect relationship between him and God in every single way. And so at the cross, what he does is he takes upon himself the sin that we deserve so that we who trust in Jesus will no longer be out of relationship with God, will no longer have God's anger upon us. And then because Jesus died and rose again, he dealt with that sin and, and, and no longer is that sin there. 
The restoration has happened. The great exchange has occurred. And so that Christ's righteousness is now our righteousness. Our sin is now Christ's sin. And we are both at peace with God. This is the great exchange. It was lovely. I was teaching it to the scripture kids and said, why don't you try it yourself? And I'm looking around the classroom and they were all kind of doing this thing with the Bibles and flicking from one side to the other. I thought, I reckon they're getting this. This is really cool. It's not that hard, but it is, it is mind-blowingly profound and it is the one truth that changes the universe. And I want to say to you tonight, have you made that swap with Jesus? Because we read that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. This is the great exchange. The great exchange. God's, uh, our sin, now exchanged with Christ's righteousness. And in all of this, I want to ask if you have made that swap with Jesus. I reckon most of you have probably. I don't know you all, but and I don't know all of you where your heart is with God, but just because you've been coming to church for a little while or a long time or whatever, if you haven't actually done business with God and said, I want to take advantage of this offer by coming to Jesus and saying, I'm sorry and I want to be forgiven, please, then it hasn't happened. It's got to happen. See, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that we are Christ ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. It is amazing. And he goes on to say that as, Christ, as God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvel of marvellous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. For God says, at just the right time I heard you. On the day of salvation I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. And if you come along here tonight and you're just not sure that if you were to die tonight that you would be friends with God, tonight is the night to do it. Don't walk out of this building. It, it could happen at any time that you stand before God as judge and wouldn't it be good to know for certain that when you do so, he sees you as friend. He sees you as friend. He sees you as friend. So how would you do that? Well, here's a prayer that I wrote. It's written there on your little sheet as well. Let me read it out to you first so you can just have a look at the words because this is what I'd like to encourage you to pray to God if you have maybe never prayed this before. It says, don't pray it yet, but have a listen first. It says, Dear God, I'm sorry that I've sinned against you. I know that I deserve your judgment against me. Please have mercy on me because of Jesus' sacrifice. I wish to follow Jesus as my Lord and Saviour. Help me to faithfully serve him all my days. Amen. There's, no, there's nothing magic or whatever about those words. It's just kind of just picking up the kind of stuff we looked at from the Bible tonight, but hopefully summarises it in just a little catchy little prayer that says, come to Jesus and say, I'm sorry, I want to believe in you and trust in you and I want to be seen as your friend. Would you like to pray that prayer? I'm going to say one line at a time, then leave a gap about the same length of silence 
And at that time, you might like to say that word directly to God, just silently in your head. Let's pray. Dear God, I am sorry that I have sinned against you. I know that I deserve your judgment against me. Please have mercy on me because of Jesus' sacrifice. I wish to follow Jesus as my Lord and Saviour. Help me to faithfully serve him all my days. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer for the first time, then the great exchange has happened. You can know for certain that you are now reconciled with God, that his anger is no longer upon you. What a relief that is. It's a little bit like a thunderstorm after a day of humidity, isn't it? Clears the air completely, and that is what's happened between you and God. And you can sing these words. Oh, to see my name written in the wounds, for through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live. One through your selfless love. This is the power of the cross. The power of the cross, Son of God, slain for us. What a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross.